right, the next question comes from Justin S. Breaking up of awareness of an individuated unit of consciousness for a free will awareness unit. If my individuated unit of consciousness is currently aware and functional in non-physical matter reality, how is it that I ended up as the awareness in the free will awareness unit in PMR, or physical matter reality. In other words, why isn't my perspective that of the individuated unit of consciousness instead of the perspective of Justin? He goes on to say, if hypothetically speaking, my individuated unit of consciousness had two free will awareness units in PMR simultaneously, why or how would I be one of the free will awareness units but not the other? Are such things just luck of the draw in terms of what part of the individual unit of consciousness ends up where? Okay, uh, several questions there. The way, the way it works is that you are an consciousness, and as such, you are connected to all the rest of consciousness and so on. So you're, you're functioning, you might say, at a higher level than just uh, being in the virtual reality game here of physical matter reality. That is true. But when you join that game, okay, you take a portion of that, a portion of your individuated unit of consciousness, and you you get a data stream. You now have a server delivering you a data stream that defines the virtual reality, and you're a character in that virtual reality. Okay, so you're, you're playing you're playing the elf. Okay, now, you start this character, it's, a, it's an immersion game, if you will. You see, when you play World of Warcraft, you're not really immersed in World of Warcraft. You play World of Warcraft, you know you're sitting in a chair in your living room, and anytime you want to, you can hit the pause button, go up, make a sandwich, you know, uh, you know take a nap, whatever, and you can come back to it. So you, you are aware both in the World of Warcraft game, because you're, you have that elf that you can play and pause anytime you want, but you're also aware in this bigger picture. Well, it doesn't work like that in, in our virtual reality. There's a part of your consciousness that identifies with or is the part that's getting the data stream from the server that's defining that virtual reality. And that little part of your consciousness kind of gets carved off, if you you might say in computer terms. It gets, uh, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, you take a piece of memory and you uh, wall it off to a, to do a specific Part function. Partitioned? Yeah, partitioned. So you get a piece of your individual unit of consciousness that you partition off, and that partition then is, is what we call the free will awareness unit. And that partition is where this data stream comes in defining you, and you start uh, there as a... As, as a, I shouldn't say a newborn, but a preborn, you start there as soon as you have awareness and start pro processing uh, data. And it is immersion. And the reason for that is it only works if you are immersed in it. It doesn't work as a, as a good learning lab if you're just kind of in and out. You know, if you're a student that just kind of walks into the classroom whenever you want, you know, looks around, eh, the lesson's not really, I don't really want to do this now, uh, you know, I'll go someplace else. It needs to be an immersive experience where this is your reality because you're making choices based on the feedback and interaction in that reality, and you don't want to be aware of really any other reality but that one. You see, it's an immersive kind of game where you get into it and you get into it totally. If you could just push the pause button, you know, go out and have a sandwich, you wouldn't take it nearly as seriously or you wouldn't take, you know, it wouldn't be the same sort of thing. It would be something that you take very casually because, oh, I'm just playing a game here. You know, this is very unimportant. Oh, my character's having a hard time. You know, I think I'll just do something else for a while. And, you know, you wouldn't be um, connected to it to the point that it would be nearly as educational that way. So you take that partition, free will awareness unit, and you let it, be immersed in this experience because that's what makes this experience valuable is that, that immersion because there you are trapped with the consequences of your choices and you can't just walk out and have a sandwich and, you know, and blow it off because 
you're trapped in that situation. All the choices you've made up to that time now have led you to this point, and you should be thinking, is this a good point? And what are all those choices I made that took me here? You know, maybe should I change something? So that's why you have to do it that way. That's why you're not really like the player of World of Warcraft, where you're in one reality and aware of it, and you're playing another reality and aware of it together. You see? Now, we would like to perhaps have virtual reality so, so uh, uh, intensive that we became immersed in them, and that's why they have now the platforms that move and a helmet that goes over, so you know all the visuals you get, and they're trying to make you as immersed as possible you know, in this virtual reality. And at that point, you can't just take off your helmet and go take a sandwich because, you know, you've got 20 minutes in the, in the machine or whatever, and uh, you're going to just be in there until your time's up. So you're kind of committed when you're in there. Well, it's sort of like that. You want to go into it. You want to be committed. It needs to be an, an intensive experience that you're just in. And anything else would make it less effective. So that's why they, you know, that's why it's run that way. And secondly, if you have two incarnations here simultaneously well there's some reason for that in that you think that you have things to learn that can be learned efficiently with a parallel process or you may think that interacting with yourself if those two are interacting with each other you know maybe you think that perspective that getting both perspectives at once would be particularly educational to you for some reason that's why you would do that but both have their own partition and it's not a matter of how did I, Justin, get in partition A and, you know, my other, from the same, you know, from my same uh, individual unit of consciousness got in partition B. You know, why was that? Well, it really didn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's all part of the same IUOC. So it all started with the same stuff. So you just say, okay, we're going to have two partitions here so they can interact effectively or because I have something to learn that I can learn in parallel. And it doesn't matter. It's a part of itself here and a part of itself here. So they both start out the same. But because they're now in different experience packets, then they evolve in their own way through this, through this uh, experience, this lifetime experience. And after that, they are different. But there's really no reason why, you know, you go to one or the other. You are just, you, you and you are the same to start with. So it's just two partitions of the same thing start off someplace and they end up very differently because of uh, the experiences that they have and what they think about those and the choices that they make and what they learn from those choices. And it could be very different personalities, could be very different kinds of people, could be different sexes, you know, different uh, races, that, uh, is, you know, different cultures. So there could be very, very different outcomes. And maybe it would just be worth doing just to let the IUOC know how much of their experience is experiential and how much is fundamental. You know? So it's hard to say why it was done, but it was somehow the system thought it was a good idea. That's why it you know that's why it's being done. And somehow the IUOC thought it was a good idea. That's why it's being done. And it's yeah, it's it's not like there's two different things and it's random and who gets what. Both are the same. It's the same IUOC. It just has two partitions that probably start out completely identical and they just go their own way. Wouldn't have to be identical, but I wouldn't see any reason why one should be greater or lesser than the other. Unless maybe one of you was a person and one of you was a puppy dog, you know, then perhaps you would have a much smaller partition, you know, to support the puppy dog than you would to support the human. So there may be differences like that in it, but two humans would probably start out with the same partition in which to develop in. So it's just the nature. The answer to your question is basically it's because you optimize your ability to grow up this way, you know, the way it's done than if it were done some other way. If it was done so that you were aware of everything, then you wouldn't grow up as much. It's a, you, you grow up more in some kind of a, of a uh, immersive experience. It makes sense, Tom. Thank you. Okay, our next question is from Greg, and the subject is authority. 
How are positions of authority established in a healthy and productive way in the organization of the larger consciousness, consciousness system? Are those on the lower levels given a choice to enter this arrangement, or is it that not is that not necessary when it is clear to those on higher levels what is best? And to follow up, how can we apply answers from part one to authority power structures in physical life? both in how we deal with what we have and in how a more ideal society would function. I got a little disturbance in your audio just in the beginning of that second question. Could you say that again? Okay. The second part, how can we apply answers from part one to authority and power structures in physical life, both in how we deal with what we have and in how a more ideal society would function. Okay. Structures grow up, grow up, or, or begin, uh, evolve in the larger consciousness system, just for the same reason and in the same way that structures evolve here in this physical reality. In other words, there a need is defined, an advantage is defined in having a having a structure. So if you start with humans, and the humans are all just running around in small tribes, then there becomes a reason for those humans grouping together because there's you know less risk with higher numbers. Uh, then, because they're all grouped together, it's really hard for everybody to do everything. Then there's a, a reason or a justification. It, it's more effective if they uh, split up the work to do so that some of them make shoes while some of them hunt while some of them you know do other things so now pretty soon you've started a little city and now there's a need for structure to uh, govern the city you know so now the city needs a mayor or a, you know a, a warlord or or whatever because otherwise there's no way to resolve disputes and there's no way to you know get a lot of things done if you don't have somebody in charge so so on. It just it just happens not because somebody sits back and says, "Ah, well, we're going to have to have a structure here. We're going to need to make a city. You, you, and you, you'll be going to you're going to be the bosses, and you guys are going to go do this." It's not done like that. It just happens at the time because it's more effective and efficient, and it makes everything work better. And the structures in the larger conscious system were created in the same way as this thing evolved, as the need came, and as the uh, inefficiencies arose and problems arose and structures were created to help solve the problems. Now, in general, the hierarchy in the larger consciousness system as it, as it applies to, as it is, affects, say, our physical reality, um, which in my book I define that as OS, our system, right, which is our physical world plus all the non-physical that interacts with it. The... Uh, the hierarchy is a very flat one. It's not like you have, you know, the boss and then a, a, a bunch, you know, you have the president and a bunch of vice presidents and then a bunch of, uh, you know, division chiefs and then a bunch of section chiefs and then a bunch of branch chiefs. And, you know, it's like you have this five or six or seven levels down. It doesn't work like that. It's a very, very flat organization. You have, and there's no more bureaucracy. There's no more... Uh, um, uh, so we say, uh, you know, it's very light-handed. So you, you want to make the fewest corrections possible. You want to have everything just work the way it works because, after all, all the games, whether it's in physical reality and non-physical realities, are there for people to make choices, experience, and learn from those. So in as much as you have something heavy-handed that requires things to be one way or another, you're interfering with that making choices and learning from the from the consequences. So you don't want to make a lot of rules. You want the minimum set of rules because everywhere they're learning from their choices. But sometimes you need to have rules because sometimes the thing will degenerate because you do have um, entities that are not very evolved, that uh, aren't particularly responsible, that don't particularly care about anybody but themselves, and sometimes some constraints are needed when you have that sort of thing. You can't just let all of that go. So the hierarchy there isn't a, it's not elected, it's not uh, 
you know, it's not voted in. It's not a democracy. It's not really, uh, it's not a power struggle. It's not like the entities there have to go arm wrestle or something to see who gets the job. You know, it's not that sort of thing. It's a very flat, and the, the function needs to be done, and whoever and whatever is looks like they're going to be most effective at doing that and being the most effective with the least amount of interference, with the lightest touch, that's generally what happens. Now, if you get, say, a leader, if you will, in a position that they, they start getting heavy-handed and it creates problems, then they will probably be removed and somebody who's better at it will do it. So it's not like everybody's the same. And I don't know how far up the hierarchy goes. You know, I can only see as far as I've seen, which may be, uh, you know, a level or two up. But I do know that at high levels I've seen um, managers be replaced. At lower levels, like in guides, I've seen those been replaced, you know, many times. Um, so an entity just fills into a job because that job is a place where they can make decisions and grow up. Same reason that you're here. So they're just doing a job, and they, some do it badly. You know, most of them do it adequately. Most of them get better at it, you know, as they do it. Uh, that kind of thing. And there is an overview that can make corrections where necessary. So at the level of correcting poor guides, you know, that's, a, that's done at another higher level of management that I, you know, that I can see. I can see that high. But then when that, when as high as I can see gets changed, I really don't, I'm really not aware of who or what made the change or how that was done. You know, it was just like, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a branch chief, you know, and the, and the vice president three levels above me gets changed, I really don't have a clue why that, why that took place because I'm just not in that level of information and I have no idea. You know, rumors will run around perhaps, but, you know, you just don't have any firsthand information because it's too too far above your pay grade to be on the inside of what actually happened that got that VP, you know, fired. So that's kind of the way it is. I don't know. I, have, I can't see all the way to the top. I can see enough levels that I know there is an administration, you know, there are rules, and uh, that <laughs> the rules often can be flaunted and broken and gotten away with. It's not a perfect system, just like here, but you know, most of the time, uh, everything works out for the best, and uh, it, the lightest touch is, is applied. So can you move up? Sure, you can move up in the sense that if you become, if, if you grow up to the point that you are capable of doing a job, and there's a job that needs to be done, you're likely to be, you know, tagged for it as the next entity. And if you make it known that you'd be interested in doing certain jobs as soon as you get to the point where you're capable of doing it, you'll probably get it. And you might get it as a part-time job at first or not. You know, there, it's just, yeah, it, it, there, there's no, there's nothing like you have to be, you know, born, you know, as a blue, bu a blue blood, you know, like in the old days with the, with the nobility, you know, you had to be born in nobility, you know, to get into the circle of nobility. If you were born a serf, it wouldn't matter how smart or capable you were, you're a serf and you're never going to be a noble because you didn't have the right blood. It doesn't work that way. It's an equal opportunity employer that just tries to find um, sources that will work. So, you know, you, you get uh, put in those positions, one, if that's instructive. And a lot of times people who, have, who are incarnated here, they, they will maybe work for a period of time as a guide or helping in the transition process or some other kind of thing like that just because it's a it's a good learning opportunity it's a good way to see how the machine works and it that can be done and if you have an intent that you would like to do that and you're grown up enough that you can it's not going to be that unusual that you you'll get to do that job and you will find that then you will have automatic uh, without you making any effort, uh, you know, quote unquote, out of body, you know, things where you'll go to sleep at night and off you'll go to this particular place and you'll have things to do. There'll be work for you to do there. And it's not a matter of you having to go out and get there and find the place and, 
you know, go to your locker and put on your uniform. You know, it's none of that. You just, you go to bed, you close your eyes, and there you are, and, you know, you're at work. So it's, it's that kind of thing. And people do that. They get the, these jobs just because it's educational for them. It's sort of like in the big corporations where they take people and stick them in different units. You know, they take you out of, you know, um, uh, propulsion engineering and they put you down to, uh, you know, sensor, uh, you know, uh, engineering or something just to make you more rounded. So they, they tend to cross-pollinate with uh, showing people how things are done other places. That happened to me some. I've done, I've done that in several different capacities where I've kind of worked as a, as a person from the non-physical and various jobs just to show me around and how does it work and how, why does it work that way. And then you work there for a while and, and then you go someplace else. So, you know, so these places get, have, this, have this unending stream of, of hired help, if you like, or part-timers or uh, um, you know, people that come in and, in and out to help. And that's going on all the time. So it's a very uh, open system. It's a very flat system. There's not lots of levels, just a few levels, and it's very light touch. Just certain rules have to be made. One of the rules that's that's important to us is that entities are non-physical entities have some restrictions on how they interact with us here as we're involved in this this. Uh, PMR reality. So there's there's some level of of uh, protection, if you will, as long as we're here, engaged in this thing, learning, doing our thing, then it just wouldn't be profitable for the for our purpose here to lower our entropy if there were constantly, you know, we're in a schoolroom and let's say we're in third grade. There's all us third graders in here and we're all learning third grade stuff and we're all making our choices and we're doing things. And then there's these uh, eighth graders who come running through the classroom, you know, uh, throwing spitballs or disrupting the class or creating problems or going in and grabbing individual third graders and yanking them out into the hall and terrorizing them or something. Well, that's not a good schoolhouse. That's not a good learning situation. So you have to say, uh, no, if you're in the eighth grade, you don't go in here to these classrooms. You know, we've got classrooms going on, and everybody who's not in these classrooms needs to stay out or only come in with permission, that sort of thing. So the schoolhouse has some rules, if you will, that makes it more efficient than if there were no rules at all. So we get some protection just by being here, not to be interfered with because we're in a serious learning situation and we don't need a lot of outside stuff to confuse us. We're confused enough without having to deal at a bigger picture. Now, part of the reason we get that, not only is it, is it more efficient that way, but we, as, as only partitions, we don't have the big picture. You see, most of us don't have any kind of a big picture at all. So we don't really know how to deal with other things coming from the non-physical side of existence interacting with here because we're here and we are just a part of this physical reality. Now, if we were not, if we were back in our IUOC, which is plugged into the whole thing, now we can kind of deal with that stuff that's coming out of the non-physical because that's our realm and that's where we are. But once we're here in this game, we kind of need to be protected because we no longer have the ability to deal with, protect ourselves, to uh, interact successfully with things that come at us from, from the non-physical side. Okay, it's, it's difficult. So there's a, there's a limitation. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't get any connections from the non-physical side. We can. I'm just saying there are some rules that, that limit the extent of which that can take place. We have a little bit of protection while we're in class here to uh, you know, keep from being disrupted but so much. Now, in, it's an individual thing. You know, some people maybe can't afford some disruption, and they are ready for dealing with things. Others aren't. So it's, it's not just rules for everybody so much as it is rules for individuals. Okay, did I answer your question? Um, yeah, that was a really good answer, to the, definitely to the first part of the question. Um, and then in the second part, I was wondering how we could apply that uh, how that's set up in the non-physical to the physical. For example, um, 
a good example would be crim having criminals in our society. Inevitably, we can't just have a total anarchy because there are bad people running around doing things. Yeah. So we set up things like police forces where we justify that we have a certain group of people that can exert authority on another group of people, even if even if it's against their choice in order to protect others. So right. uh, how, how can we apply the, the wisdom being employed in the non-physical organization to a physical organization? Yeah. Well, as you noted, the, the, there's a lot of similarities between them. The same thing that protects you in, in this schoolhouse of our physical universe is the same sort of thing that, that protects you as a citizen of you know, your, your state or your nation or your community. It's the same thing. You're, you're protected against those who would abuse your free will. And there's there's laws or rules that keeps people from doing that, and uh, so it, a lot of that's the same way. But the reason that I say this organization in the larger conscious system is a very flat one, and there aren't a lot of levels of uh, of control. There's just very few levels, is because it's it takes place among individuals with a very low Entropy. You're taking the people who are in charge, the people who have these these rules of making decisions, of of keeping others safe, and so on. These are people of very high quality. These are entities. I shouldn't say people. You know, people sounds like it's a you know it's a humanoid from planet Earth. But anyway, you know, they are entities of very high quality, and. The reason you have to have so many levels and the reason you end up with, with criminal law is because there are so many people with very low entropy. If you if you had if the people of the of the earth had very very low entropy, you know, very high quality, then you wouldn't need criminal law. Because they'd all be caring and loving and cooperative and nobody would want to steal or hurt or take advantage because that's just they wouldn't do that because they were high quality individuals you see so the whole reason you need criminal law is that you have people of low quality so you have to have rules that that uh, keep that at bay or keep that in, in line so that the other people aren't always uh, harassed by the low quality people well what happens is just like if everybody were higher quality on our planet, you wouldn't need criminal law. That's a whole four or five levels of organization there in our society that you just get rid of because it wouldn't be needed anymore. Well, what happens then if you have a if you have a very high quality um, structure, control structure, you have a very flat control structure. You don't need a lot of of levels of control. You need very few. So, and it only takes one to overlook something that's immensely large. You see that kind of thing because you you don't need that that much. So, how could we apply that? Well, I don't know. We we will apply that as we evolve. As we evolve our quality, you will find that our structures, our control structures here in in our culture, will start to change. And what they'll do is they'll start to dissipate a lot because we won't need so much control. You know, we will be more more cooperative and more caring with each other. Then we won't have to have a lot of the structure that we have now. So what will happen is our structures will get flatter, uh, lighter touch, more effective, less obtrusive. You know, all those things will happen just automatically as we grow up. It's just uh, they are the way they are now because that's what's required now as we grow. Those structures will change dramatically. In a, in, a, in a culture that was very caring of each other, for instance, there'd be no need for, for welfare because people would take care of people. People would want to take care of people. People wouldn't have to be made by tax law or made by you know, some other thing to take care of people. They would do that because they wanted to, not because they had to. So we have to make arrangements to do it because, you know, we have to because there aren't enough people who do it because they want to. And uh, we have a, enough quality that we don't want people just lying on the side of the road starving to death because uh, nobody gives a damn. So we do have, uh, you know, a caring uh, attitude, but we don't have enough people to really support it. And that, that we do have people starving to death on the side of the road and other people won't stop to, you know, to share. So we we have 
laws and rules and things that uh, kind of collectively coerce us to, to deal with the problem that otherwise maybe we wouldn't deal with. On the other hand, when you have that kind of coercion, people who would maybe deal with the problem on their own don't because they're being coerced by the system. You see, so it, when you have a when you have a structure, the structure tends to justify itself. That's why you have to evolve out of it. It's not something you do quickly. It's something that will just happen very slowly as you as you evolve. So we have some of our structures just because they're they're historical. We've always had them, so we still have them. And eventually, it'll get to a point that they'll be seen as no longer worthwhile or no longer functional, or, or they create more trouble than they than they fix, and then they'll go away. But that may be a hundred years after they should have gone away. You know, this evolution takes a lot of takes a lot of time, and, and it's not quick, but it does work. So I don't know what to say as far as what can we learn. It gets back to the same thing. What we what we can learn is that if you grow up, everything will get better. That maybe is the thing we have to learn. If everybody just individually grows up, most of the structures that we have to deal with, the laws, the things, the even the even the social structures, not even laws, but even the the uh, you know the conformity, the social structures, they will tend to lessen, and a lot of them will just disappear because they won't be needed. The historical need will have gone away, and they'll they'll just go away too. So how do we fix all those structures that? They kind of hold us tighter than we want to be held by growing up collectively. Hey, thank you. All right, the next question is uh, from Oliver on cultural and social instabilities. Over the last decades, we've seen an erosion of formerly stable cultural and social structures. Many families do not reflect the formerly stable model of father, mother, and children anymore. And also, our work life requires a lot more flexibility, like moving around the globe for a new job. What effects do these increasing instabilities have on the development of our individual state of consciousness, as well as our state of consciousness as the human race? <clears throat> Sorry, as the human race. Okay. Sorry, I have a, a puppy dog in the background that's going woof, 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 and I'm... <laughs> All right, let's... If it continues, I'll take a little break and fix that. But, uh, meanwhile, I guess we'll just have to, to live with the fact that this is a real-life video, and a little real life is now intruding on the sound <laughs> of my dog right here in the background. Uh, Oliver, good questions. We have a lot of change going on now. And the changes that we see have been going on, I guess a lot of them got ushered in with the Industrial Revolution. You know, these are all logical, um, um, should we say, uh, you know, things that, things that were kind of inevitable once we, we uh, left our agrarian uh, uh, cultures, that things would, things would change. And our sociology, our cultures have changed immensely. And we as people are lagging in our adjustment to these changes and that's that's normal too you know usually uh, we out we uh, we outgrow a situation before we develop new ways of you know, or ways of replacing that so we out we started as an agrarian family it wasn't just the nuclear family you describe a mother father and children it was mother father children aunts and uncles grandfathers you know the whole it was the whole bigger family, and before that, it was the town, was a, was a social unit. And then that came apart, and it was the extended family was a social unit. Then that came apart, and it was just the nuclear family that was the social unit. And a lot of times, that's coming apart. So these are artifacts of, um, of the, how our culture has changed and how we have to change in order to um, optimize you know, things the way they are. And we are in a very tumultuous, um, can we say, unstable condition right now on many levels uh, of, our, of our being. And part of this has been uh, created by the shrinking of the world. And I mean that by, you know, the information, the information age where everybody knows what's going on everywhere, more or less. 
uh, the global economy, all these things have, are doing to the globe what used to be done to, say, Western Europe in the uh, you know, 17 and 1800s as the industrial age got uh, underway. All of this is happening on a much faster global scale now. Whenever you change, particularly big change, you have turmoil, you have dysfunction, you have problems, and then you have to stew in those problems and that dysfunction long enough before solutions start to emerge. And I think we have just are still in and have just been in for the last, I don't know, 100 years or more, we've been in this, this place where the dysfunction and the, and the stress has been building and changing. We're trying to adapt, but our adaptation is slower than is the progress of changes that we're having to adapt to. So yes, we are uh, we are in the in the midst of of transition, and that's always a very tumultuous time. For instance, here's another another thing you didn't mention, but it's also a major a major transition. We have instincts like any other animal has instincts. The human animal animal is also a very instinct driven animal and our instincts like all the animals instincts were basically driven by the two criteria of uh, evolution and that is survival and procreation that's where most of the instincts that we have were were, uh, were driven from but we have our own drives that way and our own instincts that served us very well for you know a million or so years but those models are coming apart. They're coming unglued now because the culture and the times in which we live don't support or don't necessarily work as well as they used to with the instincts that we have. So we've kind ourselves a little bit like fish out of water. How do we negotiate these new, this new culture and the new ways of living when we have instincts that don't really match? You know, the, our instincts were good for life you know, 200, 300 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, they were very good for us then. Now, they are uh, getting in the way sometimes. So we have to adjust to those. Anyhow, that's, that's part of the same thing. And I'm not sure that I got all of, the, all of your question other than, you know, I agree with you. We have, these, we have these things going on. Humanity has to evolve to deal with them effectively. And... Until we do, there's going to be a lot of turmoil. But you have to take the big picture here. The big picture would say that we're in a transition, and the transition is now 100 years old, and it's liable to be another 100 years before we mostly adjust and transition successfully to it. We're still at the part of the transition that the change is happening faster than we can acclimate to it. So we're right in the middle. I don't see any major solutions in the near term, like in the next you know, decade or two, that would be uh, amazing if we could change that quickly. On the other hand, often a system will stew and stew and stew until it suddenly decides to change and some catalyst happens and then you get change that happens pretty quickly. And that, uh, that may happen sometime, but I have no idea when. I don't know if I actually answered your question or not. Uh, go ahead and rephrase or, or ask more pointedly, and I'll see if I can't do better. Yeah, actually, I had a second part to that. Um, maybe we can just add that to it. Um, can you share with us your impressions of these structural instabilities from other reality frameworks you visited during your consciousness explorations? Is the development we experienced over the last century a common process, and where is it headed? Even more chaos or back to more stable and different structures? Okay. Yes, it is common in... You know, when I say it's common, not exactly the same things go on in other reality frames, but similar things go on according to their cultures and, and, and so on. But from a bigger picture, yes, it's, it's pretty much the same. It's very, it's very similar sorts of things for similar sorts of reasons happen all over. And I suspect that the turmoil is going to continue for some time yet before we 
grow up enough to deal with it successfully. This is, you know, they say, what was the curse, the old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. Well, we live in interesting times. We live in times that are very uh, tumultuous, and, and we are challenged in many ways to change and grow up now that didn't happen earlier because we weren't ready earlier. As we get more and more capable of making changes, the changes get more and more demanding on us to make them. So I don't see it changing immediately, but we are, you know, maybe we can look at it graphically. You know, most processes, often a process will start out very slowly, and it gains steam slowly. And maybe you can think like inertia, and you work at it, and you make tiny little changes, and it changes just a little bit, but it keeps accelerating, keeps changing more and more and more and more. And eventually, you get to a point where the change is tremendous, and when you get to that point, you're not that far from the solution because though it may have taken you two or three centuries to get to the point where the where the pain was enough that you know you you start seriously looking around for ways to fix it, uh, it's also at, at a point where it has to be fixed soon or it will you know self-destruct, which may be if it self-destructs, then you go back and start chugging chugging on it again. You know, it's not like uh, that's the end. It means you just start over. So the other other realities do have similar things. They're different specifically, but but the same in general. It's just the nature of growing up, just the nature of change. As you grow up, your challenges get bigger. The more you grow up, the bigger your decision space gets. The bigger your challenges are. The more data you can see. The more data you can see. You know, the more choices you have. And that just keeps going. So we are in uh, unstable times. We have been in unstable times for some time. It's just the speed of that instability is catching up to us. It's getting to where it's harder and harder to ignore. But I don't think we're we're at a threshold of pain yet that we really need to get to before we start to take a more serious um, look at at the the growth required and, and the solutions required. We're still fumbling around. We're still at that part where the where the where the acceleration is now getting quicker and quicker, faster and faster as acceleration does, since it goes as the square, you know, of the of the time. But uh, it's common. We're on we're on track. We just now have to meet the challenges of our time. You know, there's nothing. Uh, it's not that we're incapable. We just have it's a, it's a uh, what do you call it, uh, management by crisis kind of system. Until the crisis gets sufficient that it causes enough pain and, uh, and enough dysfunction widely, then there is no crisis. You know, we ignore it and, and, uh, until it gets to where we can't ignore it anymore. So we're kind of in that knee of the curve where it's going from, we've been successfully ignoring it for a long time, it's getting to the point we can no longer uh, ignore it anymore. So that's good news. You know, you have that's just a process you have to go through. You have to get, you have to go through uh, ignoring it and then uh, ignoring it less and less and less to where you eventually do something about it. And we have many areas in which we have to do something about it to grow up. So it's another reason why people get this sense of these are precipitous times. Things are happening. You know, you can kind of feel a quickening of, of, of events. More so than we did maybe four or five hundred years ago when you looked around and it was kind of same old, same old. You know, I'm doing exactly the same thing my grandparents did, and they did exactly the same thing that their grandparents would did, and there's just not that much change going on. Well, it's not like that anymore. That pace is much faster. So it's unstable. We'll hope for the best. Hope we don't have to go back to square one and start over. Hope that we figure something out. But it's just a natural evolutionary process that it goes this way. Now all we have to do is wake up and see the problems and begin to fix them. And fixing them is going to require a lot of people growing up. If we're not grown up enough, we won't fix them. We'll devolve rather than evolve. If we're grown up enough, we'll find good solutions and fix them and go on. But that's always the choice. It's always been the choice. Even you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago, that was still the same choice. It's just that the change was moving at a slower rate.
All right, the next question comes from Greg. It's on Kundalini, chakras, etc. I've heard you answer questions, Tom, before about chakras, Kundalini, Chi, etc., and say that these are all just metaphors. But don't, don't these metaphors still operate within a rule set in the same way that a physical body doesn't really exist other than as data, as a data set, but it operates within the physical rule set? If this is true, then wouldn't it be beneficial to be taking care of the health of these things the same way we do with the physical body? If yes, then since you give diet and food advice, how about some advice on kundalini, chakra, chi, prana, or whatever words you want to use that are in that category? Okay, well, yes. You know, I know it's frustrating when you hear me say, oh, that's just a metaphor. You know, everything's, everything's a metaphor, but that's just the nature of being in a virtual reality. You know, and metaphor is a, you know, all our, all our words are metaphors. You know, a, a definition of a word, it's a, it's a metaphor, which means it's a, it's a word or a sound or a phrase or something that has meaning, a shared meaning for, for people so that people can communicate with metaphors. Uh, it's, a, it's a symbolic thing. So yes, everything we do here is is a metaphor by nature of the virtual reality. And yes, there are things like Kundalini. Uh, you know, that's a that is a metaphor that comes out of the Indian religious philosophy. It uh, would probably be a little different than chi that comes out of a different uh, you know philosophy that would probably be uh, more uh, what uh, you know uh, more more um, Chinese um, Asian perhaps than Indian but anyway you have different cultures that see fundamental things and ways things happen and patterns and they give these patterns names and that's the metaphor so Kundalini itself isn't necessarily a, a fundamental thing, as these other things aren't, but they are, you know, they're in description. They're descriptions of a fundamental thing. So it's not just Kundalini versus, you know, Kundalini versus Chi. Which one's real and, you know, which one's the pretender and which one's stronger than the other? You see, all that's nonsense, right? We don't, we don't, it's not that kind of thing. That's why I say they're metaphors. You have to look at what's behind them. And all right, it's it's a good way to express the data. People experience the data, and they have similar expressions expressions of that data and of their experience. And Kundalini may be a good way of expressing that out of the Hindu perspective, and Chi may be a good way of expressing that out of an Asian perspective. But they are, they're similar, and they represent non-physical energy that has an effect here in the physical reality. And the fact that there is non-physical energy that does have an effect here in the physical reality is what you're saying. Well, if it's a real thing, no matter what we call it, no matter what the metaphor is we use to describe it or the practice we use to obtain it or, or use it or uh, gain it or whatever, still, if it's a real thing that is experienced here, then let's talk about it. Okay. That's perfectly rational. Perfectly good question. Okay. Why don't I talk about it? The reason I don't talk about it is it's not... Well, let me put it another way. Most people aren't ready to hear about it. Maybe I should put it that way. It's not mainstream. It's not something that the majority of people can relate to and helps them understand and and grow up it's something that's kind of out on the fringe for most people and and actually for most people it's even out on the fringe of the fringe they don't really like going there it's a kind of a, a mystical thing that is uh, not yet mainstream enough that I would talk about it to a general audience see now, if there were just a group of people together and there were four or five or six or ten of you and you all had a real good idea of what that was and what it meant and your own experiences with it and so on, then I'd talk about it with you. But to talk, you know, to 
what in the first week we're going to get 10,000 views here on this when it goes up on the you know when it goes up uh, on the YouTube and out of that 10,000 probably 9,900 of them really aren't interested in talking about chi and kundalini and that sort of thing because that's just not in their world it's not part of their reality it's not something they can deal with matter of fact it's a little scary that we you know talk about you know, non physical forces and how they interact in this in uh, in with physical reality and what they what they really represent is tools pretty much as far as the practices go they represent various tools that people can use in order to more clearly focus you know and I can say access but you know focus is maybe a better word connections with the larger reality, in other words, to to do and and be clear about the things that consciousness can do. Consciousness can do more than just make decisions in this physical reality, right? We 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 say that, and now we get specific about some of that energy and so some of those ways that consciousness can affect this reality, like remote viewing and healing. And those are two things I do talk about because they're easy to do. It's not like you know, go spend the next 15 years, you know, working on something. It's like go spend the next, you know, two months or three months working on something and you can see results. So I talk about those because they're easy and most people can, can do those. Um, people are, are fundamentally frightened about things they don't understand. So healing and remote viewing are not very scary. Those are things that everybody can say, well, all right, I've, heard, I've read about that. I know about that. You know, people using their mind to heal. Yeah, you see about that, you know, that's been on the edges of my culture forever. So that's why I don't talk about it. What we eat, that affects everybody. You know, everybody can be aware of and think about what they eat and what it does to their body. And uh, that doesn't frighten anyone. So that's why I don't talk about it. Not that it doesn't exist or not that there's not anything to talk about. But that it's not a good subject for the general, you know, for a general conversation for lots of people. It's more of a subject for a few people who already have experience and know what's being talked about. Otherwise, it's information you can't use. Not only that, not only can't you use it, but it's disquieting. And it, uh, I guess, another another tack I would go on is one of the things I am trying to do that's different than many of the other people talking about, uh, you know, well, let's put it a different way. There's lots of people talk about spirituality. Lots of people talk about meditation and the non-physical and non-physical energies and the paranormal and all that sort of thing. Well, that's not my main thrust. My main thrust is growing up, becoming love, getting rid of fear, getting rid of ego. That's the key, that's the key thing. And my second main thing is to tie that to science, that it's not a spooky, a spooky thing to do. It's, it's not a belief thing to do, but you can put it into a scientific, logical context. So the, the marrying, if you will, of science and metaphysics and making both legitimate and both, um, you know, two sides of a, of a single coin, that coin being consciousness then you know that's really what I'm trying to do and if I talk too much to the to the uh, metaphysical side and talk about chi and kundalini and what you can do and how do you get it what that does is it pushes me away from those people who might uh, take you know who might want to who could grasp this from a um, what can I say from a scientific and logical approach so one of the things I bring to it is, that's different is I bring an on-ramp for the left brain people who are, you know, who are um, technical or logic-based. Logic you know, they, do, they process linear, linearly rather than, uh, than uh, holistically. And it's an on-ramp to these subjects for them. Well, if I go too far off of that, then I won't become that on-ramp anymore. I'll be out on the... Out on the uh, what the new age fringe of some sort, and I wouldn't want people to miss the fundamental idea that that the, the larger consciousness system is good science. You don't have to you don't have to uh, quit science in order to meditate 
and become a, a citizen of the larger reality frame. You don't have to quit science to, to see this bigger picture, you see. That's the fear that, that we talked earlier uh, uh, about the, the fear that prevents physicists from seeing the bigger picture. You see, there is a lot of that fear in the land, and, and uh, I don't want to throw gasoline on that fire. I don't want to make that fear flame up bigger, you know, than it is. I'd like to quench that fire down and say, look, you know, you can see this from a different perspective and take your science along with you. You need to, uh, you need to grow, you know, not be so fearful. So that's why I don't talk about it in, in general. If I have talked about it to small groups where it's, it's uh, more appropriate to do so. But there's lots of things. We could go into lots of offshoots of the larger consciousness system that would apply to a few people that don't apply the most. I mean, there's all sorts of things. There's all sorts of of interesting things, of uh, you know, crazy, wild things that actually go on and have been documented out in the world. But generally, I don't talk about much of it because it's not a good idea for what it is I'm trying to accomplish. You can find that talked about in the literature other places. And uh, I will tell you that, that a lot of it is real, and a lot of it does have you know, a place in science. But I don't think it's time yet to bring that up to the table mostly. Yeah. Just by saying that today, I'm still going to have 10,000 people, you know, are going to listen to that and say, ha ha, he's a closet case. Look, you know, he believes all this dumb stuff and uh, he just, you know, doesn't talk about it, but he believes it anyway. And, you know, that, you know, I just have to live with that. That's the, that's the way it is. But in any case, that's the, that's the reason that I don't uh, talk about it much. But it, there are real things. It's real tool sets. So how do you, how do you work with you know, chakras and kundalini. Well, this is a, a Hindu uh, theology. It's a Hindu rule. It's a Hindu, uh, what do we call it, tool set. Okay, now they have various chakras, and these chakras are identified with various parts of the body. You know, you got seven of them, and then there's the root chakra up to the crown chakra, and you have all the ones in between, and they, they are connected to various parts of the body. They have, they are... Um, it has significance to various parts of the body, significance to various parts of your health, plus they have psychic characteristics that, that apply to the non-physical and so on. Well, you see, it's just a tool set. It's just a, it's, it's a way of constructing the data that made sense to people. Well, the body, there's nothing that attaches, you know, consciousness to a part of the body. You know, it doesn't work like that. It's just a virtual body. You know, it's the it's the kind of thing the elf could do. You know, the elf could sit down and you know and come up with the chakras, all these things touch to his body. But you do the consciousness are really sitting, you know, with your hand on a thing, and and it just it's a it's a mapping, if you will, of experience. So the, in Indian culture, people had experience, they had experience, and they made connections with the body because if you don't make connections with something that people can feel and touch, then you don't communicate very well. Everybody feels that the physical world's the real world, and if it's not attached to the physical, it doesn't exist, so we just make this part of the body, then people can think about it all right. So it's that kind of a thing, you see. And then the kundalini comes out as, a, as an energizing force of these chakras, an energy that snakes up around on the chakras and energizes them and other kinds of things. Well, that's a metaphor for the awareness, building awareness of the consciousness and the consciousness system and you think of it in terms of chakras, you'll get it in terms of chakras. Just like if you think of auras in terms of, of light around a person, you'll see light around a person because that's the output format you're getting the data in because that's the output, output format you actually have requested it in because that's your, you know, that's your sense of what an aura is supposed to look like. Well, you can take that same data and make it graphical if you want. You know, make a bar chart out of it, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you want. So the aura itself, you know, is, is a, you know, when I say it's a metaphor. Now that doesn't mean you, people don't see them. Doesn't mean that they're not real to people. It's just another way of parsing the data so that we can understand it. It's another picture. It's the same way with chakras. It's the same way with kundalini. It's the same way with chi. It's a way of describing something that generally can't be described. So we attach it to the physical, makes it easier to describe. So that's why I say these things are, are metaphors, they're tool sets. There's things that we have made up to help us 
describe and talk about them. Otherwise, we couldn't talk about them. Are they real things? Are there something there? Of course, there's something there. You see, of course, there's consciousness there. There's something there. It's not that these are imaginary. You know, sometimes people get the idea when I say it's just a metaphor. I'm I'm saying it's just imaginary. It doesn't really exist. That's not it at all. Metaphors are important. You know, we uh, we need metaphors to communicate. Metaphors are just a way of looking at something so that it helps us share. You know, our our intent, our communicate with somebody else. That's what a metaphor does. Well, that's what these things do. And yes, there is something real behind them. It's just called consciousness. And there's a lot of ways we can manifest that consciousness. A lot of ways we can attach into it, and there's a lot of ways that we can make metaphors up about it. So in that general way, sure, you know, I, I don't mind discussing that. But if you get into the various the, the various metaphors, like, like the Kundalini or the chakras and things like that, then that's just a specific tool set. And they, you have specific practices that develop the chi in the same way. And the people that develop that, they use these tools very effectively. And the kundalini and chakra tools can also be used very effectively, but they're just tool sets. They're not in themselves fundamental, but they talk about a force that is fundamental. But that force is basically just consciousness and how that you want to perceive it. So it's it's all part of that same energy, but it's this non-physical connection to the physical that makes it uh, scary to some and, you know, mystical to the rest. That's because we have this cultural belief of it being objective physical reality, and that makes this stuff kind of mystical and woo-woo because it's not objective and physical. It's something else. But that something else does exist, and it is real, and you can see it in many different metaphors and many different practices, many different, uh, you know, if you talk to a, a shaman someplace in the jungle, you'll find that he has his own metaphors that don't have anything to do with chi or, or chakras or kundalini, but he's talking more or less about the same ways of looking at his experience and his, uh, and his energy. And then you can, you can look at it, it's almost like, um, again, like the, like the auras. You have people that, that have been looking at ores. I'm one of them for, you know, many, many years. And then, you know, in all those years, they believe they're actually looking at this color field that goes around with the body. See, again, the metaphysical attached to the body because the body is fundamental. You know, again, physical reality has to be fundamental. So we attach the consciousness data to a body because we believe it has to be connected to a body or you know, it wouldn't make sense. So people believe for years and years and years and still, you know, and will die believing that this is a, a real color field around that body. And it is attached to the body. And you can see the aura around the head and the aura around different parts of the body and about the chakras and other things. And that uh, they don't understand that that's just data they're getting. And it's an output form that they've accepted. They bought into that belief system. Therefore, that's their chosen way of getting the data. And that's what they see. And it, um, yeah, I, I found that out uh, quite by accident when somebody asked me to look at the aura in a photograph, you know, and I and I did, and there it was, just the same. And then it's like, well, obviously, it doesn't have anything to do with the body, you see. And then I started looking at auras around mechanical things. Well, it doesn't actually even have to do with something alive. And then, you know, I kept doing this, and eventually I came to the idea it doesn't have to do with anything except my intent. You know, it's my intent is getting the the data. And how I'm seeing it, the, what I see has to do with, with, you know, my own, you know, say, my own perception, how I perceive the data, how I interpret the data. And if I come out of a Hindu culture, well, I interpret the data in terms of Kundalini and chakras and that kind of thing. That's just the way I interpret the data because that's my, you know, that's my culture. So consciousness is a real thing. It's the only real thing, and it does interfere face with the physical world in lots of ways. Most of these we call paranormal because they're not physical and, and objective. So they're not normal. Fact is they're entirely normal. They just uh, don't fit into the belief that uh, trap scientists. So it's 
there's nothing abnormal about them. They're just a part of our reality like anything else. We just don't want to work with them and deny them, and a lot of people are frightened of them because uh, people are afraid of what they don't understand. So I don't know. I've gone all around the, the bush there, but uh, I'm not going to talk to you about them too much. I, you know, I'm talking about them, but not really directly about them because this is not really the place for that kind of a conversation. But are they based on real things? Yes. And are they worth talking about? Yes, to some people who are ready to talk about them and can benefit from them. But are they a main part of, you know, of the picture? No. The main part of the picture is grow up, become love, get rid of fear. You know, that's the big, that's the picture, and that you can do all that within a an understanding that is scientific and rational. You know, the, the whole thing fits together. That's that's really what's important to me. And anything that takes away from that and makes that less credible or less interesting or less likely to somebody will tell their friend about it, then I try to stay away from it because it's counterproductive to what it is I want to do, which is basically give those people who work in the logical process, you know, way of thinking an on-ramp to a bigger picture. People who are right-brained and don't need logical process and don't really care about whether something's subjective or not, they don't need an on-ramp. They've got 100 on-ramps they have had for you know, a thousand years. There's all sorts of intuitive ways for them to get there and lots and lots of books that they can read that, that uh, will talk to them. But most people who do logical processing for a living and that's just the way they live, they don't have an on-ramp. They pick up one of those other books and they shake their head and say nonsense and throw it away because there's no logical process. And those are the people who tend to make the biggest difference in our culture anyway. They're the ones that are in charge, you know, the, the, the people making the laws and making the decisions and running the corporations and, you know, the doctors, the lawyers, the Indian chiefs. They're the ones that, uh, that are running the show here for the most part. So they desperately need an on-ramp to a bigger picture. And I'd like to keep my on-ramp open to them and not make it so uh, off, off of logical process that uh, they can't take it either. <laughs>